Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing Western, South Korean cinema, and the translation of genre. Our guest is Dr. Michelle Cho. She's an assistant professor of East Asian popular cultures and graduate faculty in cinema studies at the University of Toronto. She's published on Asian cinemas and Korean wave television, video, and pop music in such venues as Cinema Journal, the International Journal of Communication, the Korean Popular Culture Reader, and Asian Video Cultures. Her first monograph is about 21st century South Korean genre cinemas, and she's currently at work on a project focused on gender and fandom in Korean wave media. Michelle, welcome to the Global Media Cultures podcast. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I want to start asking you, how did you get to focus on these research interests? Why, why do they... Um, appeal to you, and why are they an important area to study? Um, yeah, I so I started working on Korean film and media, mostly film, um, in the early 2000s, and um, I was really excited by the fact that um, there was growing international attention being paid to South Korean film, and as a diasporic Korean-American, um, Korean film wasn't part of, you know, my experience growing up. And so it was this kind of new area of content and cinema culture that um, was really exciting to me as an early graduate student. So um, I've been super lucky because um, my academic career and the kind of flowering of South Korean film and media content in global markets um, have sort of overlapped. So I see that as like, I don't know, an incredible stroke of good luck because my interests then seem to be shared by other people who want to be able to understand this content and understand um, better what's going on in a historically grounded and culturally grounded way. Um, and so that's really where I come in and I can kind of provide that context. Um, so that's really, I think, my goal as a scholar and researcher. Um, so today we're discussing your article, Genre Translation in Transnational Cinema, which was published in Cinema Journal, Volume 54 in 2015. Can you give us a brief history of this particular article, um, when you began working on it, how did the project uh, sort of originate, and how did the ideas change in the process of, of researching and, and then writing it? Sure. So this article is um, a piece that started off as a seminar paper first when I was a graduate student and then developed into a kind of keystone of my dissertation project. Um, because what I was noticing at the time, and so, you know, I, I saw this film for the first time in the movie theater in Seoul, where it was playing in the summer of 2008. So like, you know, a whole, whole lifetime ago. <laughs> um, but so, um, so I saw this movie in the theater and I was so intrigued because it is such a clear um kind of reference homage um i don't know throwback to the good the bad the ugly by um sergio leone and i was like why is korean why are korean filmmakers um kind of making 
these films that are such um, that are so citational, right? That are kind of pointing to their own derivative nature. That was the mystery to me, you know, um, especially because, um, you know, before this, I was interested in East Asian cinema um, because, you know, again, I was looking for um, kind of ways of thinking about film culture outside of uh, North America, which is where I was born and raised. And what was what was available to watch as, you know, a young person who was living in Chicago, like a major U.S. city, was uh, East Asian cinema that was circulating in the international film festival uh, space. So these films tended to be art films um, that, you know, a lot of the time critics and scholars would approach these films as quasi-ethnographic, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, what is this foreign land? Um, well, why don't we watch some movies to try and figure out what that world is like? Um, and so Korean cinema was, again, starting to get recognition from, you know, global cinephiles. Um, but it was really conspicuously not this kind of slow art film sort of style. Um, it was really, um, it was very kinetic, very action-packed, often the reference points that one could kind of pick up on were like manga, you know, other action genre films. And so the question for me was, you know, why does the industry choose this kind of strategy for promoting itself in global spaces um, when the other East Asian cinemas that seem to be doing quite well in attracting audiences abroad are so so different aesthetically thematically etc so that was the kind of question that emerged after this like sort of mind-blowing experience in the movie theater where i was like what did i just what (laughs) what was that but it was really fun at the same time too um and so the other question that I think was raised by this theatrical experience, you know, was what is the relationship between what these South Korean filmmakers are trying to do and these kind of mythologies that we receive from American cinemas um, and a kind of what, what sort of um, American dream or imaginary is embedded in this film, which is so clearly kind of playing off these like visual and narrative cliches, actually, that we have about the American West or the frontier or, you know, the heroic, I don't know, like the, the Lone Ranger or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So you focus on, um, the good, the bad, the weird, and as you mentioned, it's parodying or drawing from uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, mm-hmm. Sergio Leone's, right? Right. Um, so they're both, in some ways, a Western. Yes. Um, even if they're playing with that. And, and when you're detailing this, you refer to the Western as the ur genre mm-hmm. or as the sort of cinema's founding narrative. Yeah. Um, could you elaborate on that and, and why why this is important to understand what, what you're talking about? Sure. You know, because the Western is very familiar to us as a story about a kind of uh, human 
subject that goes out into a hostile space and overcomes a bunch of challenges in order to kind of domesticate the wild. It's structured, you know, as a kind of paradigmatic romantic narrative. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, um, you know, the, the Western offers us a, a good example of a, um, a transition or some sort of like bridge between the literary romantic narrative and the cinematic one. Um, so that's, I think, what I was referring to there. But then I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, like there are these, you know, stories about, you know, the first film. So there's um, the Lumiere brothers, um, you know, their silent one of their first films that features like a train pulling into a station and mm -hmm. there's a kind of like you know myth around the the way that that um experience kind of shocked some cinema goers but um and i don't know i i, I don't know if we know that that's true but in any case yeah um <laughs> yes yeah. um but yeah like so one of the first films um, that we have an account of, in a way, it, it sort of participates in this iconography of like modern progress. The train right. is such a symbol of the modern, and the train was such an important um, mechanism for allowing like a settler colonial um, structure to, um, yeah, to colonize. North America or like spaces of, of frontier or wilderness. It's like, yes, you have the horse and the, the, I don't know, hero or whatever, but you also have trains. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that was kind of another way that I was thinking and in, in using that phrase, the ur genre or right. cinema's founding narrative. Mm -hmm. For sure. So it's this very much tied to uh, American ideals mm -hmm. of, um, expansion West and manifest destiny and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it, it, it travels, right. It ends up traveling to, um, Italy to, for the sort of spaghetti Western mm -hmm. and then, um, Korea and the, the good, the bad, the weird. Yeah. Um, so then let's talk about the local context. Can, can you give us a brief sense? So you've mentioned, um, there was most of the international fair, most of the films that were being watched by uh, international audiences were mm -hmm. these art house uh, films, right. let's say. But can you give us a sense of what was happening inside South Korea? What was the, the film industry in the sort of early 21st century sure. uh, like? Yeah. Um, so a really, really important kind of historical event and context for understanding what was happening in the film industry um, is the Asian financial crisis. So, um, 1997-98, there's this uh, currency crisis that really decimates the South Korean economy. Um, I mean, it, it bounced back relatively quickly. Um, and so by the early 2000s, there's a lot of kind of recovery um, and the country is kind of restabilizing. Um, but, you know, it was this really kind of devastating um, event that, I mean, one of the um, unexpected or unanticipated impacts of the Asian financial crisis um, is that 
you know, on on the minds of a lot of Korean business people and um, legislators and, you know, people in, in political leadership, there was always this question of, you know, how do we participate in globalization in a way that will um, prevent us from being vulnerable to this kind of um, crash again? And, you know, the U.S. has always been like an important model for South Korea and its kind of development um, economic development and also cultural kind of um, cultural ideas or ideologies. And so there is this idea that like, oh, we need to develop beyond like manufacturing, beyond um, the kind of, yeah, beyond cars, um, steel, you know, <laughs> textiles into new sectors of the economy that will help us to kind of remain globally competitive. And yeah. a big, um, I think a, a big part of the U.S.'s global hegemony has to do with its ability to export its cultural products, right? right? So um, this is a period of time at the turn of the millennium when um, the attitudes that the South Korean government had towards popular culture also started to shift because in the past, I mean, South Korea is um, a country that went through um, a period of authoritarian rule after mm -hmm. World War II. So it really didn't um, transition to um, a democratic civil society until the early 90s. Um, right. And so um, in the past, like leadership used to view popular culture as a suspicious force, as something to right. control and regulate so that it wouldn't, you know, like cause people to get, you know, ideas that would make them disobedient or, you know, that um, pop culture had a potential to be subversive. And then here's where the transition happens, where then, um, you know, the, the culture ministry and corporate leaders start to see that, you know, actually promoting popular culture and helping to encourage its growth and flourishing could actually be a really important economic tool for, you know, post-industrial national economic development. And so, like, given that all of this stuff is happening and changing at this kind of time when... Um, there isn't, uh, I mean, there is an established film industry in South Korea um, that was really thinking primarily in terms of domestic audiences. Like, they mm -hmm. weren't really making films for export, but they had been weakened over time because domestic viewers didn't really care about Korean cinema. They just wanted to watch, like, you know, Hollywood movies or foreign films, um, they were really weak. And so then there wasn't this, like, um, there was a space that opened up for, like, a bunch of, like, new voices, young directors who had totally different ideas about, you know, what film culture should be. And they kind of jumped in, and they jumped in at the right moment when there's a lot of um, space for... Um, yeah, Korean cinema to be sort of reinvented in a way. So some of the most famous, like, South Korean filmmakers that we 
know of today, like um, Pong Juno, right? The person mm-hmm. who made Parasite. Um, he was making films as well in using using popular genre forms as a way to convey like his take on Korean society and culture at the time. So in this context, why why do genre films help these sort of young new directors to um, get their foot in the door to start developing their their own vision for for Korean cinema? What was helpful about genre uh, films in mm-hmm. that sense? I think that genre films um, were appealing to young directors because they were a way to attract audiences both domestically and internationally because, you know, generally speaking, um, the kind of popular genre forms in cinema um, that we might be familiar with just from watching films um, they are really important marketing tools, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can't, we almost can't avoid talking about genre when we're trying to describe a work, you know, or describe a movie to a friend or to right. whoever, you know, um, it's such an important, just like piece of information, um, that sets up this set of expectations and ideas um, that really help to familiar familiarize content, even if it's coming from a place or a, a culture that you don't really know much about. Right. So I think that South Korean um, South Korean like artists and um, you know cultural content producers have recognized the. Um, the effectiveness of genre parameters for a long time. I mean, I think this is actually something that um, you see even in South Korean cinema from earlier periods. There were a lot of melodramas. There were, you know, a lot of action movies. And, you know, the subgenre of the Manchurian Western that I talk about in the article um, is actually this, you know, popular genre that dates from the 60s and 70s. Um, where, again, Korean filmmakers were using um, the familiarity of the Western to make domestic, uh, to make content for the domestic audience that would make them feel plugged into a kind of global cinema circuit. Um, But there was this brief period in the 80s and 90s where um, South Korean filmmakers were moving away from genre to make this kind of socially realist critical cinema that was concerned with exposing some of the traumatic effects of authoritarianism in the the country. So that's actually the filmmaking that first drew attention from scholars of Korean cinema. They were more focused on the quote-unquote um, new Korean cinema of that 80s and 90s period that didn't have the kind of um, popular appeal. Right. So it seems it seems that genre allowed for a number of different things, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, if there was this push for um, Korean film products to also have a, a, a global appeal in mm-hmm. some sense, to become an export 
Um, genre allows that in some way to to become familiar with with for audiences who might not be the, in the domestic market. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the familiarity with um, genre tropes or or uh, genre forms that can also appeal to a variety of audiences and mm-hmm. that filmmakers can plug into and then use that to to portray their vision of society, as you mentioned. With In your article, you're trying to theorize uh, or you're developing a, a theory of genre translation, mm-hmm. essentially, right? Um, can you could you give us a sense of what, what that theory looks like? And you mentioned one of the things that you talk about as, as a way to think about how genre becomes translated is this idea of transference mm-hmm. um, as well. Could, could you talk yes. to us about, about that? Yeah, definitely. So the kind of theory of genre translation that I am developing in the article is one that veers a little bit away from discussions of film adaptation and also um, discussions of transnational cinemas that mm-hmm. I was influenced by and in reading at the time that I was working on the piece. So maybe it helps um, to first kind of outline what I was trying to distinguish my approach from sure. um, before I kind of <laughs> fill in what I'm actually doing. Um, but so, you know, there were there there were some. Um, there was this literature on transnational genre cinemas um, that I um, that I encountered um, that really talked about. I, I think it was really more focused on like cult cinemas or you know um, filmmakers like Tarantino and um, um, Miki Takashi, like you know this kind of Japanese cult filmmaker. Um, and you know other um, international directors who are using genres like uh, hard-boiled crime, neo noir, um, sort of these these really stylized forms of um, kind of filmmaking and narrative to yeah create these kind of sexy gritty. Um, sort of, uh, of films about urban environments and the prevailing wisdom or the kind of consensus was that, you know, these genre films that are transnational, um, they appeal to a pretty specific kind of global cinephile, um, who is really into, um, who, who's sort of like a collector, right? Um, who likes to watch um, international cinemas through this uh, citational lens. So loves to be able to identify, you know, like, oh, that's a Godard reference. That's a, you know, that's John right. Woo picking up on, you know, whatever um, Melville to talk about this, right? And so there's, there's a kind of... Um, like a like extreme textuality that's really about a love of knowledge, like a kind of collector's mm-hmm. uh, impulse. And so then what I was witnessing in South Korea was um, a different type of genre film genre cinema where these films are remarkable because they are as like they're 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 super 
popular and wild, widely viewed at home, right? Domestic audiences really like them. Um, and so clearly it's not just a cinevile connoisseur who loves mm -hmm. like, you know, global film, um, who is drawn to these works. Um, so it seemed like there was this like whole other, um, like there was this whole audience that was being ignored in that analysis of genre films and the adaptation of genre forms across different cultural and linguistic contexts. So I was like, okay, that's not quite it. Um, and then, you know, there was this um, scholarly literatures on adaptation, um, mm. some of it coming from like literary studies where you're talking about the adaptation of a, you know, um, canonical work and how it can be like rewritten or adapted to a different medium. Um, and there was still this kind of idea that, um, the line of attribution has to be very clear right. and that audiences are always going to be able to clearly see what has changed and have some sort of very rational response to it. Right. That's often, I think, how adaptation studies can approach the way that a work can move across time and also across different forms. So like from a story to a play, to a film, to a, you know, like graphic novel or whatever, right? That there's right. this knowingness on the part of the spectator or the audience. And I guess that knowingness is what I, um, I, I wanted to see if there was a way to think about how genre, how, how narratives get translated um, across space and time without relying on this kind of, um, imaginary figure of the, like the ideal spectator or viewer who's gonna like kind of intellectualize everything that's happening. Um, and like, again, be able to catalog all of the things that are going on. And so that's where the theory of transference comes into play transference is um you know the the way that a person might reenact or repeat um a certain relationship or uh like so in the setting of the like the clinical relationship between a, a patient and their analyst um if a patient is trying to work through um, aspects of their past, they might like unconsciously establish the same relationship that they have with someone else with right. their analyst. So that transference is a kind of like movement of those feelings and that experience to a different setting. Right. So the appeal that that concept has um, for thinking about the way that genre works is that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, genre films are described as repetitive and therefore, you know, that's, that's why genre uh, works are sometimes denigrated as unoriginal, but that is precisely the appeal of genre films for a lot of viewers is that the familiarity offers the space and opportunity to like re-experience sensations and feelings that are for whatever reason, 
like pleasurable or sometimes, I mean, I don't know, you could even say therapeutic, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, people who love horror films because it gives them an opportunity to kind of go through a range of very intense sensations and emotions um, in a kind of safe container uh, or safe space would, I think, say that there's some therapeutic benefit to the the genre. Um, but so, yeah, so that idea of transference, um, I think is really helpful because it solves the problem of needing to imagine this ideal spectator who has this thirst for knowledge and wants to know every single reference point and every, you know, like, like a connoisseur, um, you know, transference is a, an experience that we have, all had in some way, shape, or form, right? Because human interactions or just interactions tend to be patterned. That's how we make sense of them. Yeah. And this shift in focus from, as you point out, this idealized spectator who is all-knowing and who's deriving um, interest in the film only by being able to capture the the references, mm-hmm. um, the citational references, or being able to trace adaptation from one medium to another, thinking about um, the transference aspect is focusing on other ways that we experience cinema, right? Which is through sensations. Yes, um, And through the experiential part of it too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you don't need to know what the reference is, but be um, and sort of immersed or uh, fascinated by by how it's presented, That, that in itself has its own has its own appeal yes um, as well right um and genre films are, are are perfect for this because so many popular genres are about prioritizing sensation right whether it's the action film the horror film um it's about creating first a sensation in the spectator before you get to before even the plot makes sense because sometimes it doesn't make sense exactly. right and that's that's part of the appeal too yes yes uh, so so you point out uh, you specifically saw this um, idea of transference play out in The Good, The Bad, The Weird, mm-hmm. uh, even though it could play out in others. But what was it about The Good, The Bad, The Weird that you found particularly notable in, in thinking through these things? Mm-hmm. I think that, um, so I was saying earlier that my first experience of this film was sort of mind-blowing because um, it is such a kinetic film I guess that's Mm -hmm. how I would describe it. Um, And then when I was talking to other people about whether they had seen it or not, um, they were like, oh my gosh, that scene with the horse, like the, 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 the chase, you know, like they would talk about like the physicality of it and that Mm -hmm. their, um, their response to it was so embodied, you know, like, oh my gosh, that 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 guy he rides a horse like like amazing you know like um and so it's like okay there's something really specific um about the the corporeality of this film um and the fact that i really it was such an immersive experience and so uh physical but i was like uh the narrative is kind of secondary like I felt like, okay, this is a, a great example, a great case um, for trying to f- hone this theory of transference as genre translation or adaptation because it 
exhibits so well these characteristics of genre cinema that um, focus on the body and sensation, but then it also is like pointing to its own derivative nature and its like status as an adaptation of other stuff, like unoriginal. That's like the whole point is that the film is unoriginal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it presents this contrast to the, the sort of citational practice that you've, you mentioned before, right? Which is uh, including the, the reference, but expecting the viewer to, um, to get it and to derive pleasure from know being an all-knowing spectator who gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, the good, the bad, the weird is doing the opposite, which is literally telling you, here are my references, here's what we're, we're playing with. Yes. Uh, but turning that as part of the, the, the pleasure of it, of telling you everything yes. up front, rather yes. than assuming that you have to be um, a connoisseur to, to, to get it. Yes. In some ways, right? Um, okay, so within this, let's talk about uh, literal and figurative maps. Mm-hmm. So you dedicate a section to thinking about how the good, the bad, the weird is, is making very interesting use of maps. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also notable because maps play a particular kind of role in the Western genre. Yes. So can you tell us more about this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in a way, there's this like um, red herring of in the film that's very central, <laughs> um, which is this, uh, this treasure map that drives a lot of the action and the narrative. Like it, it really kind of sets everything in motion and everyone's trying to figure out what the map, the, well, so everyone assumes that they know what the map means, mm-hmm. but then, you know, after two and a half hours, you realize, oh, nobody had a clue, actually. Um, And so I really like this idea of a map, which is a key for decoding signs and for creating this, uh, I mean, a map and a key is a set of symbols that then is supposed to correspond to some material reality, like the land, right? Mm -hmm. And so in a way, it kind of is a figure for genre itself which is like a map for understanding what it is that you're looking at in a text right. um, and for um, making sense of something, right? So this map, um, again, it's this like, uh, it's a red herring. It like doesn't really lead to the answers that you were expecting. Um, but it's also really powerful in this film because when we think about frontier and what it is that man is doing to the frontier, how it gets domesticated, oftentimes it's by creating borders and boundaries. And those are the things that are being um, like referred to on maps. So mm-hmm. the act of mapping, the act of cartography is such an important colonial gesture, right? Right. And so... Um, I mean, I talk about in the article the way that the Manchurian landscape, um, this area of like northern China that was, um, or it's now it's part of um, northern China, but it was a kind of territory that challenged the many groups of people that, or the many kind of national entities that tried to colonize it because it's a landscape. I mean, not unlike the... American frontier or North American frontier that um, 
was inhabited by, you know, nomadic peoples for a long time, um, that this is the relationship between human and land that gets destroyed and uh, erased by uh, colonial, uh, by, by colonization, right? That, right. you know, we need to now fix these, we, we need to change this landscape we need to change this land into landscape that then we can make into a static uh, thing and yeah. then we can exert control over. So um, in a way, I think that, yeah, the the film is so cleverly kind of thwarting <laughs> um, the, the, yeah, the intention that maps and mapping um, aim for, which is to take space, make it legible, readable, um, make it very clear um, in the way that it corresponds to ownership and property and boundaries, um, including national boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting parallel that you, you draw between the map as a way to make sense of the territory mm-hmm. Um, and genre as a way to make sense of, of what you're watching, right? Mm-hmm. It gives you sort of pointers. So it it becomes an interesting parody when uh, something like the good, the good, the bad, the weird uh, takes the idea of the map and says, what if we just make it not make sense, yes. right? What if you just have all these pointers and all these directions that you think are leading somewhere, but maybe they're not leading anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just the, the wackiness of the journey that was most exciting yes. of all. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the other thing about the way that the film resolves this like mystery of the treasure, because they're reading this map as a treasure map the whole time, is that it might be the case that the map is readable, but you do not have the experience or ability to read it. Like it's right. it's readable to somebody else, you know? And so in the case of the um, the oil that rushes out of the ground um that might make sense to you know uh an audience that like i don't know watched a lot of um beverly hillbillies or something right Mm -hmm. um or it kind of knows this as a trope of the american frontier um and mineral like wealth um Mm -hmm. and doesn't get it in the space of manchuria right yeah, I think that's a, a great way of putting it. It's it's a map, but you might not be able you might not be the one to be able to, to, to read, read it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How have you built on this work since its publication, mm-hmm. uh, or is it related to things that you're working on now? Yeah. Um, so the the essay is um, an important chapter of the book project that um, is looking at Korean genre films. And so I take the um, the issue of translation and transference and sort of look at um, other genres and how that dynamic is working. Um, so I look at gangster films, um, some horror films, and then I also look at documentary, which is uh, kind of interesting to sort of think about documentary as a genre that has mm-hmm. a, that sets up a similar kind of agreement with its audience and mm-hmm. what it's going to deliver and 
what formal techniques it will use to do so. Right. Um, so yeah, this book is like a long time coming. <laughs> and so it should be out like soon. Um, but so yeah, this was a kind of keystone of um, the book project. And then um, since, um, yeah, so for the last three or four years, most of my um, current work has looked at um, a different sector of the Korean culture industries, which is pop music, music videos, um, some television. So I'm really interested in um, like streaming media. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at fan produced media, vlogging, um, reaction videos. Um, so the concept of genre has been really interesting for me to kind of think about um, this whole new world of um, Korean popular media that is ha that has become really ubiquitous, I think. I mean, this mm -hmm. summer has been kind of nuts because, you know, suddenly the figure of the k-pop stan the k-pop fan yeah. has become um you know like sort of recognizable to it's it's kind of like it's still niche but it moves out of it a little bit so that like your mom and neighbor probably have heard the phrase like k-pop all of a sudden because it was featured in the media um yeah. a lot this summer so um yeah, like the this whole new arena of content, how is it also doing the thing that Korean cinema had to do in the kind of turn of the millennium period, like so 20 years ago? How does it make itself legible? Is it legible? Yes, no, maybe. I mean, so genre is such an important um, and powerful framework for thinking about just how pop culture content appeals to different audiences. And so one of the features of K-pop as a musical genre, more like a, a transmedia phenomenon because, you know, it's it's visual, it's, mm -hmm. it's um, choreographic, so it's like kinetic, and it's also mm -hmm. like auditory. You know, how does this um, whole kind of sector of... Korean culture industries, how does it become so global? It uses, it, it cites <laughs> all of these musical genres that are super recognizable. It's a mashup always of all of these different forms of popular music. Mm -hmm. And that is how it's discussed. So in a way, Korean popular culture, Korean culture industries as um, an exporter of content, um, they've really established now a certain brand which is um the ability to genre bend whatever that might mean to you the ability mm -hmm. to take incongruous things and put them together in a way that's going to be familiar enough to people who are you know not from the region but um also surprising and novel enough to capture attention globally. So that combination of um, familiarity and novelty has really become the calling card of Korean film industry or Korean um, 
culture industries. So, yeah. So I feel like, huh, I was onto something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <know>. Exactly. <laughs> you were tracing it as, yeah. as it was emerging. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as, even though it's, uh, and as it's establishing itself. Yeah. yeah as well. Yeah. 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 Great. Michelle, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was really fun. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening song by Pottington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>